0: There's so many more artists than there are opportunities. Yes, opportunities do come. It took years for them to come to me, but the first ones had to be self-facilitated. You have to carve your own path through which your career can go. She said, we should probably do a press release. This was the night before we finished it and photographed it. I was like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And then, my word, the response was crazy. Absolutely crazy. There was news crews everywhere. It just broke me, absolutely broke me. Most days I was doing 20 hour days, 21 hour days. And I would just, most nights I would just wake up just almost screaming.
1: Welcome to the Installation Art Podcast, the world's number one podcast about installation art and the people who make it. I am super excited about today's guest. Even if you haven't heard his name, you will have seen his work. It's been featured on Colossal, Design Boom, and pretty much everywhere else. In 2019, his installation in Milan was the most Instagrammed public artwork. Some people call him an architectural wizard. Alex Chinnick is a British artist who makes sculptures and public art on a monumental scale. His work is humorous and playful, and it looks unreal as it defies gravity and laws of physics. Just looking at the scope and size of his urban interventions gives me heart palpitations. The amount of planning and work and budgets involved in making it all happen is mind-blowing. Alex has made building facades slide down, unzip, crack in half, and melt. I cannot wait to share with you how he got started with his art and how his ideas become reality. Without further ado, let me introduce you to Alex Chinnick. Thanks so much, Alex, for saying yes to this. I'm a bit of a fangirl myself, so like, woohoo!
0: thanks for asking me. And it's it's music to my ears that you're a fan. Honestly, these projects are so bloody hard sometimes. It's nice to know that people are seeing them and enjoying them genuinely. I know I'm supposed to say that, but honestly, I mean that. It's nice to hear. So thank you. Thank you.
1: Let's have a little warm up, silly questions round. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you?
0: That's a real, br- <laughs> I don't know. I'd like to think I'm a four, but I think if you ask my studio manager and my wife, it would be eight, nine. In, in your head, it feels normal, right? <laughs> like everything feels like a good idea yeah. and makes sense. But the two people who really tell me the truth think I'm a bloody idiot. So I guess i am either in the middle and say six. Sure, yeah,
1: we'll go with that. Do you have a favorite quote?
0: Well, I, hmm. in, in the context of my work, it's only the paranoid survive. In the sense, yeah, only the paranoid survive. That feels applicable. I mean, I'm quite an anxious practitioner. And the way I kind of deal with everything is just to work so hard. So... I guess. And that keeps kind of a degree of anxiety in a sense of keeping this kind of depressing notion of not fulfilling possibility and potential at bay. So only the paranoid survive. But I think in the context of the world at present, it's probably the quote that comparison is the thief of joy. I think that so much of the Mm -hmm. the world, so much of our ill will and ill health to a degree comes from comparison. And the illusion that your neighbor has a better life than your own because of what they did or what they have. And it's, it's all a kind of artificial projection. And the danger of hype, particularly in the creative sector. So yeah, comparison is the thief of joy and only the paranoid survive. Both really positive. <laughs> Sorry, they're quite negative quotes.
1: <laughs> Very British of you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm trying to come from a positive place in saying them.
1: What's your favorite beverage in the studio?
0: If it's before like six PM, it would be biscuit tea. I drink this thing called biscuit tea now. And it's tea that tastes of biscuits. Okay. It's so good. It's kind of malty. It's so delicious. So hmm. bi- and it
1: stops from eating
0: biscuits. Like I've become obsessed with the gym and everything like that. So now I don't it stops me from eating biscuits. It kind of it, it satisfies a craving. So biscuit tea, it's really good.
1: I have not heard that one before and I would love to try it. (laughs) I should
0: send you a box. It's delicious.
1: Okay. Um, And if you weren't an artist, what would you be?
0: Antique dealer. Hmm. 100%. My passion is making sculptures. Don't get me wrong.
1: You have a lot of antiques?
0: Yeah. I'm a real collector of antiques. I've collected folk art for years. It's got very popular which is great for the dealers, but frustrating for the collectors, I suppose. But folk art and Welsh, Irish, Gustavian, Swedish furniture. I collect antiques and I'd be an antique dealer. I love it. It's a real treasure hunt. There's just timelessness. And my favorite form of painting is time. And it sounds so deeply pretentious, but the thing I love more than anything is weathered and worn color where it's kind of color has taken on an age. And it just um, just accumulates utter charm in storytelling and i I just love antiques for that, so I'd be an antique dealer, okay uh, absolutely, I probably still might be like i some like <laughs> I
1: quite often think a side hustle
0: well, not even a side hustle, just the hustle, and the sculpture becomes the side hustle. I think probably most weeks, oh, I just just stop this and go for it and become an antique dealer sometimes. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Let's start from the very beginning. Where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in the UK in a small town in a county called Bedfordshire. It's perfectly placed in the sense that it's about a 40-minute train journey north of London. So I grew up Mm -hmm. there, and it was great.
1: And were you a creative kid?
0: No. No. I mean, I was interested in how things worked. So I was brilliant at taking things apart and just pathetic at putting them back together. So I, I was that idiot that, yet some incredible, like I got this racing game for Christmas. It was like a unit and it had a steering wheel and a little screen on it. And I just, I had to understand how it was made. So I took it apart, put it back together. And there's about eight pieces left that weren't reinserted and it didn't work again. So no, I was kind of, kind of technically clumsy. I was curious. I was a curious kid, I guess, but I wasn't particularly creative. So I actually grew up playing sport. That was my thing. And then, um, as I got into my teens, I, I fell in love with painting. I wasn't particularly good at it, but I was in love with the, the kind of meditative escapism that it offered me. I have a busy mind. So I just fell in love with just becoming lost in a process. And for me, that was painting.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And so you went to study painting?
0: I did. Yeah, yeah. So I left school. I mean, I just, I loved it. It's all I did. It was all I did. Every lunchtime Mm -hmm. after school, I was in the art the whole time. I just loved it. And looking back, they weren't good paintings, but it just felt right. Something about the process of making art just felt so right. So I went to art school in London I went to Chelsea College of Art and I did a foundation but then I ended up doing a degree there so I was there for four years and I, I very quickly stopped making paintings when I got to Chelsea after a term it moved to its current location which is opposite Tate Britain which is vast vast site and the thing that they'd unquestionably invested most into was the workshops
1: mm-hmm.
0: so I kind of I fell into making I got into making things and I just spent all of my time in the workshops there just mucking around with materials and machines and that was that was crucial and that's how I migrated to sculpture really Mm -hmm. I mean I was still making paintings in a way I still make paintings really they're sculptures they're very material you know there's, there's a lot of material going on a lot of making but I still think quite like a painter. For example, I made this piece called Telling the Truth Through False Teeth, which is 312 identically smashed and cracked windows. Yeah. It's a building, like there were a lot of them are buildings, but it's very much about facade and a frontage. So it took me a long time to start thinking, oh, there's actually a back to a sculpture or there's a side to a sculpture. That took me quite a long time to get into that place. Ah. But yeah, I mean, the paintings, it's always kind of stuck with me and I always want to go back to painting. Like, one day I will get back to painting. But, yeah, sculpture just keeps getting in the way. So, yeah, art school was good. I was pleased to leave it, though. I was really pleased to leave it. Why? Well, there's (laughs) just too many artists. I know I am one. But, I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was... um, I think it, uh, it played a very important role. And I developed kind of a language around art. And I developed a thicker skin in terms of critique, which is so important, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: particularly when you're public art in the public realm. um, You need a thick skin because it's easy to forget the compliments and you always remember the insults. So it Mm -hmm. it gave me a robustness. It certainly gave me a kind of um, an ability to waffle pretentiously. (laughs) Here we are. You're bathing in that right now. (laughs) But I. Um, I just didn't find it productive. It just wasn't a productive place. I I can't explain it in the sense. I just didn't feel like it was an environment that was designed around making work. It just felt like a world that was kind of conceived about just talking about work.
1: Yeah. Very academic.
0: Yeah. And I had no appetite for an MA. I was so pleased to leave. It's not a criticism of art schools. It's just my relationship with them and they've changed so much. I went back to Chelsea College of Art recently and it just the bar had closed and the studios were empty and it, it just felt a little bit lifeless. I mean, I'm not best to comment on it, but I think it's possible that the kind of spark and the spirit that art schools once famously had has perhaps diminished and um they're a little bit exhausted and because of necessity they've become such commercial operations Perhaps some of the creativity in the bohemia has gone, which is a shame. And I just enjoyed getting out into the world, I suppose.
1: So what did you do after school?
0: So the first thing I did was I took on with two friends a factory unit. This is a bit cliche now, but back in the time, we were the first people to take on a unit in this, this factory building in East London. A huge complex factory. And we were the first people to do that. So built a four or five bedroom apartment in this factory building. And we lived there extremely inexpensively. This is so hard in London now. I just don't even know. I don't even think this is possible in London now. But at the time, there was still the outskirts of the city and the opportunity to do this and live extremely inexpensively. And then there was two toilets downstairs. In this factory building, there was the, the men's toilets and the women's toilets. And I went to the factory owners and I asked them if I could refurbish the toilets or gut the toilets. And uh, we got them for free so, because these were disgusting. It's just horrible. So I gutted them and my good friend took the female toilet and I had the male toilets. And um, that was my studio for four years. And it was completely mm-hmm. free. That gave me space and opportunity to make work. So for income, I went and worked for another artist, British sculptor, Conrad Shawcross. And um, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. I made tremendous friends. One particularly remains one of my closest friends, an artist called David Murphy, a British artist, brilliant artist. And Conrad was just brilliant. It was such an amazing environment to learn. He chucked you in the deep end and he's extremely ambitious. I always say I learned ambition from him. Ambition is contagious. You're not born with ambition, you're taught it. And I think the best way to learn ambition is through osmosis and just being in the company of an utterly ambitious innovator. Um, and Conrad was that, and it it was such an important environment. And I got to travel with Conrad and that was great. And. You really learn, and I say this with the greatest respect. I mean, this is nothing against Conrad. This is in any environment in that way. You learn the kind of artists you want to be, and you also learn the kind of artists you don't want to be. And it it absolutely helped to mold the kind of creative direction that I wanted to take. And I learned more in that environment, in a kind of ambitious, technical, and operational environment like that. I learned more there in three months than I did in three years at art school. Without a doubt, it was brilliant, you know, and then I was there for four days a week then three days a week and two days a week. And then I got to a point where I neither needed to be there or probably should have been there because I began to expand commercially and creatively, so, but it really, really wonderful foundations in terms of Conrad.
1: Yeah. Mm. What was your first big opportunity to show your work or make, make an installation?
0: Well, it wasn't really an opportunity, it was self facilitated. The thing I always bang on about is there's so many more artists, there's so many more artists than there are opportunities. Yes, opportunities do come. It took years for them to come to me, but the first ones had to be self facilitated. You have to carve your own path through which your career can go. Particularly if you're making work that doesn't sit neatly within the appetite and trends of the of the commercial art sector. So I immediately realized that the real art form was self-facilitation. That's the real art form. Um, fabrication is one thing, the art of facilitation, there's a whole different thing, it's more important. It is more important. So I'd been mucking around for a long time and with lots of different materials, lots of different processes, and I was working in a smaller way. So I was, I was using the materials of the built environment brick, steel, concrete glass, and I was making smaller works. They were nice, like really nice investigations and studies and such, but they felt like they belonged in an architectural context and not a gallery context. Mm -hmm. So I was having lots of shows and stuff, but people weren't really that excited about the work. They were, but it wasn't wasn't kind of striking. The right response that I was seeking, I guess, which was one of people, I suppose, Mm -hmm. It was a very important time in terms of learning materials and processes and accumulating partners. So, in terms of the construction industry or uh, the sector of of manufacturing, they had a lot of resources. Can't really speak for now. Like, for example, bricks. Bricks is the best example here. I wanted to make kind of studies with bricks. So, I went to Ibstock Brick and I did this with company after company after company and just said, look, I'm trying to make these curious things can I have the bricks and your expertise and the, the materials for sure and some of your processes like water jet cutting machines and stuff for free and in exchange you know I'll make these curious things and you you know you have the photos and maybe there's some marketing material at the end of it mm-hmm. and they all began to agree.
1: Did you explicitly tell them that this is for an art project or did you phrase it some other way?
0: Yeah I always said it was for an art project yeah. like I had absolute utter kind of Enthusiasm and whimsy, and I think it, they they warmed to it. This wasn't when I was making big stuff, yeah. But I I developed the ability to pull work off. This was it. It was just basically facilitating a platform through materials, partners, inexpensive existence to make work. That's what it was always about. Love that and collaboration. So at art school, I wanted to make some work that involved motion sensors. It was this performing minimalist work and I called it Donald and the Judds. It was such a good title and I didn't have the uh, computing ability to do that. So I went to Imperial College, which is a very kind of science-based college, and I, I found a kind of computing club and I met this brilliant programmer called Stefan, very clever man, who did all the computer work with me. And I immediately realized how creatively liberating it is to partner with other abilities. I know that sounds really obvious now, but at art school, it, there was this real sense of um, it had to come from your mind and it had to come from your hands, and no one else could kind of feed into that. I set myself free by essentially saying, I need to conceive something, as a, I need to conceive an idea. And then the challenge is about working out how I create it. One of the kind of the greatest mechanisms to overcome those other schools is collaboration. And that's that's been the root of my practice, I suppose. So yeah, I've always enjoyed that idea of working with others technically, creatively, you know, in terms of design. So um the first piece that really made sense was the identically smashed windows. This was three hundred and twelve of identically smashed and cracked windows, one thousand two hundred and forty-eight pieces of glass. I'd been mucking around with this in the studio, but essentially what I was doing was I was taking smashed glass digitally scanning it and then reproducing it hundreds and hundreds of times. I'd done a kind of butterfly effect of it in my studio with two windows that hung on the wall. But this is my point. I was kind of like, this is beautiful, but it needs to be in an architectural situation. That's where it belongs, the narrative and the materiality. And context is everything. It's an illusion, and the the strength of an illusion hinges on its believability. So if you can introduce it into the material world in the appropriate context, it's so much more powerful. So that's what I did. I wrote to a glass company and they sponsored the glass. But The problem was was finding the right factory. Yeah. And there was this fantastic factory in Hackney in East London that just was this beautiful brick roof of the building that had all of these identical windows. It wasn't easy, but I was allowed to use it. Eventually, it was ending demolition, which was perfect. Uh, but it was a Sri lankan man called Bala who owned a nearby petrol station, who owned this fantastic building. He knocked it down. But yeah. um, I love that they come and go. So basically, I removed all of the glass and installed all of this glass. And it took weeks and weeks and weeks. And the building was full of asbestos. And the building had been used to grow cannabis. So it was three f- floors of just fertilized pellets and lamps and plugs. There was foxes in there. But I removed all the windows and installed those. didn't really think about it. Like, I was just doing artwork. For me, it was just another artwork. It's just accidentally I'd stumbled into something that was public-facing, massive. It was lots of small parts that became a big artwork rather Mm -hmm. than now just cranes and foundations and construction companies and all of that rubbish that we deal with now. It was so wonderfully simple, and the logistics took care of itself. The cost took care of itself. It was very inexpensive. All I needed was time, and I always gave bucket loads of that and um pulled it off and the response was fantastic. Like it was suddenly in the papers and there was hundreds hundreds of people going to visit this building.
1: Mm.
0: Kind of that was it. That was it. I'd made public artwork. I'd made an architectural public artwork kind of by accident. Not by accident in terms of the, the production of it, but like I didn't set out to make a public artwork. It just was one. And I loved it. I loved it. So that was it, that was the start.
1: Wow, that's pretty cool. So you kind of found that building owner yourself and got in touch with him yourself and were like, hey, can I change your windows? Oh, I did
0: everything myself, yeah. yeah. It's As I say, the real art form is facilitation. That was always how it was, it still is. It weirdly still is. Don't get me wrong, I work with lots of people. Um, I work with lots and lots of brilliant people. And every single one of them is better at that area than I am. You know, yeah. every single area I work in, that person is better than me at it. Mm-hmm. But it's still, it's still always weirdly just comes back to me at the end of the day, desperately trying to pull it off. Desperately trying to pull it off. It's strange. Even when, the, I don't know, I don't really like talking about budgets and the money side of things, but even when there is, like, if any artist would say this, and any artist should say this, if you, if you give me a budget of £10, I'll design something that costs 11 Every bloody time. <laughs> every time. So, and, so then you've just got to beg power and steal that extra pound. But I think that's probably the best way to play it. I'd rather do it mm. that way, I think. Over-deliver.
1: What stemmed from that project in Hackney?
0: What came from that was, maybe this is a bit superficial, but it's incredible how energizing positive attention can be. You know, like being an artist is a bit of a slog. And it's very easy to feel great about being a creative practitioner when you have the kind of the wings of positivity and the kind of airstream of momentum and compliments behind you. For a lot of years before that, no one cared. People probably still don't. But I was energized by attention, which is a real shame, but it's the truth. And uh, I felt an, an incredible sense of limitless possibilities. Now, this was naive, but wonderful naivety. Experience being real paid to creative freedom. You yeah. just learn the reasons why something can't happen. So. I had no experience, and I was full of energy and ideas and optimism. I still am, but it's different now. What was great was everything was simple sculpturally. The things we make now are so complicated sculpturally, we're actually making a conscious effort to return to a greater formal simplicity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Basically, I, I designed a house. Like, I, I started drawing a house where the front slid off. Right? So mm-hmm. brick out. Front slid down, and this stemmed again from the kind of material investigations I'd been doing previously. Now, this was amongst other things I was working on, but that was the main one. So I just drew it, and I thought, okay, all I need now is a house that I can rip the front off. Um, whatever it was, four thousand spoke bricks or something. I can't remember whatever. And structural engineer, steel fabricator, blah, blah blah. Went on and on and on and on didn't even think about planning permission, all of these things. I was just like, that's all I need there. And I I spent about a year pulling that off, in the sense like I would just write to everyone and anyone and beg, borrow and steal. And it, it became the sliding house, which is called from the knees of my nose to the belly of my toes. I ended up getting everything free. I got the bricks free. I got the timber free. Um, I got the construction team free. A local contractor. Actually, we paid them a tiny bit of money. Amongst other things, I got the structural engineering for free.
1: How did you pull that off?
0: I just beg. Like it's so different now. I couldn't do this now because of my portfolio. I can't do this now, and I shouldn't do this now in a way. Got the crane for free. Free thing for free. But the one thing that particularly comes to mind is a structural engineer. A brilliant structural engineer wrote to me, and he was doing a blog. And he said, can I put this on a blog? It was one of my studies. I said, yeah. Then I wrote back to him and we started a conversation and he agreed to do the structural engineering for the sliding house without charge. I didn't even know I needed a structural engineer really at the beginning, but because you've slid the front off and you've ripped the top, you've got uplift so that that the roof would blow off. Anyway, his name was Simon Smith from an engineering company called Smith and Woolwork Engineers. And they've been working with me for ever since oh. like it, it, simon and i work on every single project together and obviously not for free yeah. um although it sometimes feels like that him i'm sure but it he became a fantastic collaborator and we we pulled that one off now also another thing was the house like that's a freaking big thing to do like get a house now yeah. I, I wrote to lots of different people but i really wanted to put it in margate Margate was really interesting. It's in Kent. It's a seaside town. Without getting into the kind of the demographics of the, the people there, it was a very interesting town in a degree of flux because of the arrival of Turner Contemporary Gallery. It just arrived there. So there was something very interesting happening there. But it was once a very, very affluent area. It was it was where real affluence of the of, of London would go with holiday there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it had this very grand properties, but lots of different factors. The, the properties had been abandoned or fallen into neglect, and a lot of these properties had gone within the council's portfolio. Anyway, over a period of time, I developed a relationship with someone who was working there at the council, but she was appointed by English Heritage and Arts Council England to manage the the kind of introduction of the gallery into the area. But she was working within the council. Her name was Sophie, and she was brilliant she essentially guided the creative path or the administrational path to allow council to give me that building for a year or so to create that artwork and rip the front off and the moment i saw that building with her we walked around margate showed me all the different properties i just fell in love with it and i knew it was right and she made it happen and she's been my studio manager ever since
1: wow that's so cool
0: so the two people I would have spoken to most without doubt over the last you know, many years is Simon and Sophie and both of them I met in that one project. And we pulled it off. I mean, like I, I, I breathe over a lot of things. And Sophie let me stay at her house three months over the summer to do it. She was brilliant like, and she didn't know me. She just took this, this chance on me. I mean, now today I'd be lost without her. She's my colleague, uh, my business partner, one of my best friends my therapist you know like i'd be totally lost without her and so she helped me pull that project off it was brilliant and it was bloody hard like i'm not i mean honestly pulling that off is hard but we got there and i didn't again i didn't really know i didn't really know what the hell i was doing and then she said we should probably do a press release this was like the night before we finished it and photographed it i was like yeah okay we'll do that and then my word the response was crazy absolutely crazy like 2 days later we went back there there was news crews everywhere I've always really loved the idea of accessibility like I love the idea of conceptual accessibility where if you're placing something in the public realm um I try to I don't consciously strip it out. I've always gravitated to work like this, but I champion the idea of kind of stripping out any degree of elitism, whether it's kind of creative elitism or particularly intellectual elitism. And the work is extremely complicated to produce, but simultaneously be easily understood. And I've always loved that idea and, um, it's never been a strategy. It's always been a philosophy. And there's a big difference. It's not about, oh, we need to get this funding or please these people or or the optics need to be positive here. It was just always, I I just loved the idea that lots of people could enjoy it. So the day after we finished it, Sophie had organized a road closure and we'd done an an invitation drop to all the houses around in multiple languages. And everyone came and we had this kind of weird zero budget street party. (laughs) And the only thing we'd offer was Like this lovely guy gave us his cherry picker free while we were doing it. So we just coned it off and the kids all had cherry picker rides. The idea was that they'd see the artwork, but they would just mess around. Like they didn't really care about the artwork. So that was cool. We did that. And the day after it was just, the street was just full of news crews. It was in every single paper, all the news channels. And I honestly, that was not the plan. That was not the plan. Yeah. And it got this huge media response. And it continues to get a colossal media response. It, it's a funny one that, like, we're now actually going back to making work like that. But I had to take the departure away from it. Like, the worst thing I could have done after that project was carry on making sliding houses. Mm-hmm. That would have been the worst thing I could have done. Like, I happened to nail it early on. Like, in terms of public artwork, it's, pretty, it's a bloody good one in the sense that it was contextually spot on. Like it felt like it fitted within the environment. It's playful. Um, it's big. The narrative is easy to understand, but it's technically deliverable. Like Frank Gehry always says, the brilliant architect, he says something like no bend is $1. One bend is $2. Two bends is $10. And I was in the one bend territory where it's like, you just bend it in one plane. I, I now am, I'm in like the 50 bend territory, which is <laughs> yeah. just, just like So I nailed it. I absolutely nailed it. An artwork that still continues to have wonderful reach. But yeah, it was crazy. And then that was there for about eight months. Then it got vandalized. And it's like, oh, no.
1: What happened?
0: I got vandalized. Like kids just went over and smashed it up a bit. Mm. And like the council were getting nervous because I finished it in this massive skateboard company. Like right, The first person to do a drop on this gets free merchandise. I was like, oh no, no, (laughs) No, don't say that. So all the kind of anxieties of just worrying about, like I didn't know about good design at the time. I think I do now. Yeah, it got vandalized, repaired it, and then it got knocked down, which was perfect. It was always going to be. That's the thing, buildings that are pending demolition give you such creative freedom because people aren't precious about them. So yeah, we pulled that off, and that was great. And then, as I say, I haven't made a sliding house since. I I will, absolutely will, and I will do smash windows. But you have to, yeah, apps, oh, it's so tempting. Repetition is tempting. The comfort, the creative and the commercial comfort, repetition is so tempting. But it's, while you're a young practitioner full of ideas and energy, got to reject that temptation that's the way i say right okay. so yeah that was what happened
1: so how did you go from that to having to hire a team and how do these projects get funded now
0: well then after that project the invitation started and mm-hmm. this was at a time when it wasn't that long ago but it was it was when the the philosophy of placemaking was kind of taking off so the timing was good
1: i think it was about 10 years ago
0: yeah i mean 9 8 yeah exactly so now we're getting into like hovering building territory which was i think about 8 years ago now and it was an interesting time like the idea of placemaking was just taking off so Commissioners like the London Design Festival, which was great. The, the commissioners really were developers. It was really developers.
1: Really?
0: Yeah, property developers, like big property developers. And I had about three years where no one was really making work like me. And I, I like to think no one still is, right? It, it's very, very hard. To make this work mm-hmm. and to pull this work off. It's really, really, really hard. I mean, Rachel White's house is just is a masterpiece. And Richard Wilson's turning the place Sofa is a masterpiece. And Matter Clark's energy and risk and ambition was it all those 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 three things really charged me. Um, but there wasn't many people, and there still isn't many people making work like this, where it's deeply sculptural in this sense not decorative you know you can make work that's kind of cheap cheerful and easy to deliver all day long it's very hard to make work that's expensive challenging and very very hard to deliver um mm-hmm. it requires utter obsession but apart from pulling off other things i had invitations but at the same time there was still the window of opportunity to self facilitate so what i'm getting at is for example covent garden Invited me to create an artwork for the piazza. Now, that was the first artwork that had a proper budget. I went over it completely, went over it. So stressful. But that's where we created the hovering building, which was basically this huge illusion of a building that was hovering. And the footfall to that was absolutely enormous, enormous. It was there for 30 days. The footfall increased by about a million. It was on the national news in 35 different countries. The footfall was Huge. And that was when the engineering challenge, structurally, that one was was a bit of a beast. That involves kind of engineering, know-how and risk. Um, but we pulled that off. Yeah, as I said, it was developers really coming to us then, and then there were budgets, and it kind of grew from there in companies, and there was this period of of okay, so I did the sliding house, the upside down building which is this huge upside down building the hovering building yeah. uh, the peeling road where a car hangs upside down which was paid for by and which we then moved to sheffield to show for free we paid for it to go to sheffield and show it in an area that really wouldn't expect to find a public artwork of that kind um and the melting house the melting house i think probably over time materializes my best work that was a house made of seven and a half thousand wax bricks. Amongst all of those, they were all being commissioned, but the melting house wasn't. I'll go back to the melting house in a minute. Pulled off all of those pieces within a period of about 18 months. What? Yeah, and then I had a nervous breakdown. And now how I like pulling off those in 18 months, I, I can't tell you enough. This is not paint, it's not painting, this isn't murals. Wait, nothing against murals.
1: Um. What do you mean by pulling off? Like, as in you completed all those start to finish yeah. in 18 months? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Apart from the sliding house, which... Well, I finished the sliding house within that 18 months. The sliding house, took like, like a year to facilitate, let's say. But yeah. yeah. Sliding house, down building, hovering building, melting house, peeling road, 18 months. Honestly, I mean... I can't even, like, it just broke me. Absolutely broke me. Because these were making no kidding minimal profit, if any, or losses. And I would just, most nights I would just wake up just almost screaming. And I was barely sleeping. When I did the hovering building, uh, the hovering building was on Covent Garden Piazza. And I would finish there and then I would walk from there to London Bridge to the Melting House. And most days I was doing 20-hour days, 21-hour days. I, you know, this isn't cool. Like, it, this is bad. I, I think if it, I'm going to kind of conclude with anything here, it's a warning on this to young practitioners. Look, I mean, any opportunity that was there, I would take it, right? Because I worked frigging hard to be given commissions and opportunities, so I wasn't going to miss them. I'm not wired that way. I'm still wired that way. I, you know, Nothing has changed in terms of kind of being a workaholic. And then at the same time, my first child was born when we were doing the Melting House. And that was, um, there's an interview of me in the guardian and like, I'm doing it. And I think they say I'm a bit frazzled and I was such a mess. And then I get a call and my wife's gone into labor. So, uh, anyway, I, I was going, Millie Miles, I want to talk about the birthing house separately. So I keep thinking I've got to come back to that.
1: Okay. I'll lead you back to it.
0: Yeah. I did one small project after the, um, this isn't a sub story, by the way, this is not at all. You know, what wonderful problem. But I did one small project after feeling right, and I just broke. Just broke. Had a had a nervous breakdown. I mean, I was going, I don't know, 110, 120-hour weeks. Easy. Easy. There wasn't a day where I wouldn't work. Non-stop. Non-stop. And then you'd finish work, and we worked with people, you know, obviously, like the Common Garden project we worked with, I don't know, like there'd be in total 80 people involved. And the Covent Garden project stressful, took an enormous amount of risks. I was totally not experienced enough to deliver a work of that kind at the time. But like it was deep end. It was beautifully deep end. And like that's where you learn to swim, right? And so I've been trying to throw myself in lots of different deep ends for the last eight or nine years. You know, it was deep end. And I was too deep, probably. And um, I had the manager at the Disney store threatening to sue me because we were blocking deliveries. And... That, that was just one of many, many, many things on that. Anyway, so this small project happened and it, I just broke. I just broke because I was going a million miles an hour and people were warning me that you know there was this brilliant man, Dave the Scrap, who was a scrap metal collector who worked with me at the time. And he kept saying, you're going to do yourself a mischief if you're going to do yourself a mischief. And I, I just didn't listen. And I didn't take anything like that seriously, that potential mental fragility. I just didn't take it seriously at all.
1: You didn't believe in burnout?
0: Yeah, didn't didn't believe in it at all. Because the, the, my greatest asset is stamina. Well, it always was. And then, um, yeah, I mean, without going into details, I just broke. I just broke. You know when you watch a sprinter and they're sprinting and they kind of pull their hamstring and they, it's like they've been shot in the leg because they just like scream and grab their... It was like that. I just went. And it knocked me out for a long time. Knocked me out for like a year. Um, so there's a real change. You'll notice in my portfolio and the timeline, there's a real shift just because it, there had to be. And it it immediately, well, not immediately, it took months to work out what the hell was going on. But the strategy had to change. It had to be about a long-term plan. It had to be um, like a long-distance race and not a sprint. It had to transition yeah. to a long-distance race. And I think if you look at a lot of practitioners, I don't know, there's not many like me, but I think if you looked at a lot of practitioners, there is a change. There's this initial introduction and impact. And with that comes a lot of hype. At that time, you have a lot of people coming to you trying to work with you, which is great and is wonderful. And you've got to take those opportunities and you've got to maximize the ambition and risk. But there comes a point where there has to become a pivot where you start to transition into a longer game. And that breakdown, you know, the only breakdown I've had, I mean, was that forced pivot and a new strategy came in necessity, basically. And that set about that new chapter. Don't get me wrong, since then, we've still done the... Uh, actually, I think in that 18-month period, maybe you could extend it to two years, we did the upside-down pylon as well. But of course, since then, we've still done the spiral staircase, which is a 35-meter unraveling spiral staircase, which is... That is a technical... I'm going to swear. That's that's not easy, Um, and we've done all our unzipping buildings. Of course, our unzipping building in Milan, which had two hundred thousand visitors across six days, wow, that was mega. So it's don't get me wrong, and we're we're delivering some projects at the moment that are in that vein. Like it's not like we've stopped making taking huge risks. It just they have to be appropriately spaced out and approached in the right way with the right team and the right collaborator. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: So how long do you need for one project now? How long do you take to complete one? Well,
0: there's not really a fixed formula in that regard. Different factors affect that, like flow of cash from the commissioner, size of budget, therefore, I suppose, whether it is for a fixed deadline, whether it's temporary or permanent and the various technical obstacles in the way. So we're delivering a project next summer, which is wonderful. It is it, If I say so much, it's a beauty of a sculpture. It's beautiful and it's permanent. I'm so excited about this artwork.
1: Can you tell me more about it?
0: Well, it goes on the water. I guess what I can say is it floats on the water on a canal system that we've been working on for years, years. And Even now, there's some very complicated things going on with regard to unexploded bombs and um, next to a rail line, underneath electricity power cables, in a contaminated area, uh, historic mines underneath, lots of stakeholders. It's tricky. That one is, that's taken years. Whereas something like the zipping building in Milan, we did in three months. You know, Three but that, that that had a team of 150 people. Wow. Yeah, but that had 150 people or something like that. So there's lots of different, there's lots of different, we could do a sliding house in six months, let's say. Again, it's not about fabrication, it's the facility. That's the thing that takes time, the permission and the the property and the support. And that's the thing that takes time. But for example, our smaller works, like, okay, so we've just finished a twisting phone box, yep. a twisting bronze phone box. Four years. It's taken four years. And that's wow. with Tanglin, one of the best found, arguably the best foundry in the world. There's no formula. Now that we've made it, we can make them in nine months. That is an addition. We make the next ones in nine months. But uh, it takes, um, yeah, there's no real formula for that. But coming back, while well, I remember, coming back to the melting house. The melting house was a crazy, crazy project. It was on a site where a candle making factory once stood in London. So it had this nice historic context. and we did it with, um, illuminate productions. This was one that was funded. And so we had to really kind of really beg, borrow and steal. We were given the land and then we went to a local contractor, a massive local contractor who were working on the hospital in London bridge, and they provided lots of technical support, but amongst loads of different things we had to make the bricks and we made wax windows and wax doors and everything like that. But we needed about 10 tons of wax. And I went to a wax company in Kent who were the biggest producer of leg wax, like hair wax pellets in Europe or something. Anyway, the owner of that, a man called Tony, this is Darren Wax. And Tony absolutely loved it. And you need to meet partners that are full of eccentricity and don't let logic get in the way of a terrible idea, you know, (laughs) so he helped me and we went to all of these different wax companies around Europe asking for a ton of wax and 10 tons of wax. I all said, no. So we went back to them all and asked for a ton of wax and they all said, yes. Mm. So we had the wax wax, and we, we made seven and a half thousand wax bricks, wax windows and wax doors and made the melting house. That was a great public experiment. That was a weird project. And some days it looked incredible, some days it looked a mess. That was very weird. That made me nervous. Again, it's just the value of meeting these collaborators. And so today, like today I'm going out for lunch with Tony. He's coming here in two hours to pick me up. Because you know, you make friends along the way and you make important collaborators and professional partners and stuff. So um yeah, that was an interesting project. But I guess what I'm saying with the with the nervous breakdown thing is just I know lots of people know this, just caution. When you're going a million miles an hour, it's just a degree of caution, I guess, and just being careful. So, yeah.
1: How did you get out of the burnout and into being excited about making art again?
0: Well, I left London and I moved to a farm in the Kent countryside, which is about 45 minutes from London. I mean, I don't know. Like, so, in the last eight years, I've had three children. It was just about laying different foundations. So, the farm was about thinking about the future in terms of space. The farm has lots of very big, exhausted buildings. It, it, the farm's become a huge project. And I, I remember watching the Anselm Kiefer documentary. It was the Imagine one by Alan Yentop, it's called Remembering the Future. Side note, the new Anselm Kiefer documentary that's been made by Wim.
1: Wim Delvar.
0: Yeah, and it's called Anselm that's just been shown at the Curzon. It was on show for about two weeks in the UK. I went four times. <laughs> the Anselm Kiefer, though, Remembering the Future. Um, if anyone's listening to this and they're an artist or particularly a sculptor, you just, you have to watch it. I think it's on Vimeo. You have to watch it. it It's mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing. And the thing I fell in love with was just the, the world he was creating. And it took many, it's taken decades. And I began to think that way, I suppose. So we moved to the farm and we started kind of building a world here, but with regard to the projects, they carried on. Like I kind of healed, that we would take longer to create them. It became a lot more about design rather than kind of a flash impact.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the work kind of calmed down a little bit in the actuality. This was intertwined with things like the unzipping buildings, of course. So when I moved to Kent, I worked with a very good commissioner of mine uh, and collector of mine, and he owned some old industrial buildings near my farm. I took one of those and we ripped the front off and unzipped a small kind of 60s office block. Um, mm. This was before Milan. And so, really yeah. nice. It was nice to make a work to a degree not commissioned. It, it was. I mean, it was commissioned, but it was nice to make a work on a, a kind of dilapidated derelict building again, and we're doing quite a bit of that next year again.: That's where I'm best, I think. when I had the permission and the freedom that an exhausted, unloved, unprecious building offers. It, so it kind of picked up again, but the, the big shift was beginning to make smaller works. And this was both a creative and a commercial necessity. So in terms of the creative, I, I needed more out. I, I had a lot of ideas and um, I, I have an appetite. Like as a sculptor, I have this appetite that could never quite be fed or quenched. It's this constant creative thirst and making lots of smaller works helps that. So yeah. we started making smaller works but that embodied a lot of the sculptural narrative and language that the larger works have, particularly this idea of fluidity. And we also started saying yes to smaller internal projects. Like um, I did this lovely project in a museum in Germany where I created the illusion of a column being knotted. So it had these 450 year old wooden columns in the museum. And I thought, oh, it'd be nice to not install anything and just get the illusion that we've just manipulated what was already materially present. That's kind of what sculpture is, in a way. It's a reorganization of materials that already exist. I love this idea that you have a house that's completely built and exactly the same house that's just knocked down. It's exactly the same amount of material. It's just arranged differently. That's kind of what sculpture is. The, the kind of the reconfiguration and reimagination of the material world around us. That's the way I kind of try to pretentiously package it. But yeah. Um, so. I created this knotted column, and I loved the knot. Like, I loved that. I enjoyed the fluidity of it. Well, I liked the contextual integration of this artwork into the setting, but I particularly got excited about the knot in its three-dimensionality and the way it's constantly changing as you walk around it. But it's also so simple, but technically complicated. So I saw the knot as an opportunity or as a kind of an area that I thought, that would be a neat way of developing a visual identity around that. I mean, if you think about a lot of different practitioners, they have a real visual identity. And up to that point, the work had been quite sparse. In the sense, yes, it was It was probably me. But the thing about my work is you might say to someone, do you know Alex Chinnick? And they'll say no. And then you'll show a picture and they'll say, oh, I've seen that, I've seen that, I've seen that. And then they'll say, well, did this person do those? And that's good and bad. Like I put a lot of stock in. Creative breadth and I think I like to think that I've got plenty of time to refine and repeat later. Um, but I don't know, with the knot I just thought this presents quite an interesting area of opportunity to develop a kind of visual identity around a knot. And it really chimed with me, this, this illusion of fluidity. And there's something quite interesting about a knot in terms of it, it's stopping something. So anyway, I set about making smaller works, so we made the knotted clocks. In walnut and bronze, um, which is still ambitious. I mean, the, the, the walnut clocks, we're working on twisting pianos at them, which i so excited oh, about. Wow. They're looking beautiful. But the knotted clocks, even that, you know, after a while, we realized well, after one, we realized we didn't want to make them in oak. We should make them in walnut. And I love American black walnut, it's the most beautiful wood and it behaves well, technically. These are big, you need big trees. You need big trunks. So even that, I had to get a shipping container of 10 logs from Arizona. They're like four meters long and over a meter diameter. And that took about five months to come. So even that, even the the risk and ambition to pull off the clocks was huge. But we were doing the clocks and then I got into bronzes. So we just started making lots of smaller work to be collected and owned. And that was great. So creatively, I was enjoying it. Especially it was another revenue stream into the studio so it was great
1: do the you make all of these though. in your kent farm factory or do you outsource these
0: no all over the place and they're made in different ways some parts are carved some parts are machined so for instance just over the last two years or so we've been developing lampposts cast iron lampposts well it's been years actually it's been about four years the, the cast iron lampposts and that's a family of them and we make straight ones. We, we're just finishing them. There'll, there'll be loads. But there's straight ones, but there's also ones tied in knots, tied in bows. They're very exciting. But those were, again, facilitation of fabrication. I've always got to be careful. When I talk about four years, like that, that's a lot of design work and also a lot of refinement, technically. But also setting up to make lots. Mm-hmm. the, the lamppost is a really good example actually like in the sense that it's now they're glazed and painted and they work i wanted to make a public art that was a family object that's simultaneously functional so the way that the lampposts will work is you could buy 10 straight ones and one in a bow or five different sculptural ones and that's it whatever it is you know lots of different objects. i thought it was really good to integrate function into public art and they can kind of go anywhere so we had to design those so that we could make lots of. Them. That's quite complicated. I mean, it's very easy to make a one-off. It's not easy. It's hard. But so we designed those so that they could be made in cast iron, which feels right. But we had to refine that structurally and technically. And then it's about making the patterns. And the patterns are far, far more expensive and complicated than the actual objects themselves. And once the patterns exist, you can make hundreds of the same part. Um, mm-hmm. But it needs a lot of money. A lot of money. So, part of that was design. Part of that was problem solving, prototyping, overcoming it, working out how we're going to make them. The engineering, the foundation design. But then it's about finding different partners to buy them off a the sketch, so that then the patents are financed. You see what I mean? So, with those, um, we we digitally design. We do all the design work, and all the material prototyping, then. Patterns are made by a company in Kent actually, which is nice because I'm based in Kent. They're five axes machined with a robot, the patterns for those. They're cast in Kent by a different kind of company. And then we assemble those in in Brighton with a company called Millimeter. And Millimeter have become really good fabricators of mine. So the thing to say is one of the strategies in terms of um, avoiding having a breakdown again was finding the right collaborators Refining the work so it had a permanence, and prototyping so that we weren't finding out problems on site, and then making less in house, doing less less in house, a lot less. So, Mm -hmm. in that action, you remove a degree of stress. There's always been so we've got it like a one of our barns here is about ten thousand square feet, and there's always been this discussion about should we just set up all the fabrication here, and then you just you take on the stress of not only running a small business as an artist, you take on the stress of being the fabricator and running that as a business, and also the responsibilities in terms of structure and material performance and longevity that come with that. So we've slowly developed some fantastic partners and fabricators and collaborators, and a millimeter is one of them. And I trust those guys; they're brilliant. So they do the assembly. So we now design everything obviously um i obviously conceive every idea i oversee the design of it meticulously that takes months so all of the design work and digital work is by us but then a lot of the making now we use machines where we can sometimes hand is crucial uh for different reasons but we now manage the delivery of the artworks so we kind of design them and manage their delivery and development and i have to work with lots of different people so i'm rarely ever here i'm always on the road in meetings or a, uh foundry visits or factory visits or site visits but yeah. yeah as i say it's kind of the art design and facilitation. but also there's no time like i don't have time to make anything there there's no time <laughs>
1: this concludes part one of our conversation with British artist Alex Chinnick. Make sure you hit follow wherever you're listening so you don't miss part two. You can also go to installationartpodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to get the next episode straight to your inbox. Go check out Alex's work on his website, alexchinick.com. That's A-L-E-X-C-H-I-N-N-E-C-K dot com. And make sure to follow him on Instagram at Alex Chinook. This episode is also available on YouTube with images of the work. All of the links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to the Installation Art Podcast. Do you know someone who would enjoy this conversation as much as I did? share the podcast with them coming up in the next episode
0: the challenge remaining naive and foolishly ambitious amongst every accumulating experience that's very hard to strike that balance when to turn your experience on and when to turn it off because if it's on all the time you'll never do anything because you're too aware of the obstacles. What I've always tried to do is use that limitless creative energy to try and stretch the boundaries of resource and possibility and achievability as much as possible. It was just the most exquisite feeling. It was just me and the work at 5 a.m. and I allowed myself a rare sense of accomplishment.